Thinner guys, so a Romani person cursed me. Now I'm hungry, but not thirsty. Yeah, it's thinner. <laughs> and so on. I was going to do a whole thing of how, you know, it's Thanksgiving. And so we're, we're recording this the day after Thanksgiving, more or less. And, uh, you know, we're all full of food in he- over here in America. And uh, <laughs> I thought Jealous thinner would be a good Australia. fix, but I like yours way better. No, that's true. I could use the thinner curse for sure. I've had yeah. my third <laughs> serving of traditional Thanksgiving. Do you notice that? I don't know if this is if our international uh, listeners know. A part of the Thanksgiving tradition is sitting around eating the exact same plate of food, like the same ratio of elements, and uh, I, someone invariably comments, I don't even really like Thanksgiving meal that much. Like this <laughs> combination. It's a lot of mush on mush. The, the cranberry's a little cloying. Like I'd rather have like a Branzino or, a, you know, and See, that happened at our, yeah. and yet then, and you make so much that you then eat it for several days in a row. You, yeah. You get sick of it eventually. That is true regardless. But I, I, I have heard this observation before, but. Personally, like my mom has been crafting like a Thanksgiving dinner that is so perfect for everyone is like, this is the best meal I've ever had every time. And it's so perfect to us that it's just like we like we every now and then we try something new, you know, like mm-hmm. she's like, do well, how about this for an order of what if we do uh, sweet potatoes with some marshmallows on them or something like that? And we're like, yeah, let's try it. Let's try it. And then she does it. And then we're like, yeah, that's pretty good. I like the uh, raspberry on top of the pretzels, though, and stuff like that. And like my mom is a wizard when it comes to cooking. So we have the same meal at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. And it has not changed, like, for 10 years. Yeah. Because we all like it. I don't know so, what it is. Yeah. It's- well, that's what this story came from. Uh, by the way, this is Kings of King. I'm Michael Swain. That's Abe Epperson. Uh, Hi. Stephen King, uh, I was reading a little bit of the background. It came from his uh, personal experience of his doctor mm. bitching at him that he was going to die because he weighed 236 pounds. And was 6'4", and he Mm. needed to stop smoking. And I just want to point out, I weigh 236 pounds, and I'm 6'4", and I smoke. So, (laughs) And my doctor, I literally just got everything tested on my systems, and my doctor said, like, you're still doing pretty good. You're doing fine. So I don't know what kind of punk-ass doctor Stephen King had, but by the 70s standards or whatever, he was Mm. killing himself. Um, with his height to weight ratio. And so he wrote a story under the pseudonym Richard Bachman that mm-hmm. called Thinner about a big old fat this guy is... who gets thinner, but in a but is bad, you guys. By the way, it's just one of those things because I always just look at like I just think of people like writers and directors uh, and craftsmen as just like worker units who work on the movie unit. You know, mm-hmm. it's like so I never really think about I do think about their personal lives and its relevance to story, but I just now, like you just taught me the fact that Stephen King is 6'4", and that changes absolutely everything for me. It's taller than you think, isn't it? I totally thought he was like a 5'8", dude. And I I know height means nothing, 
but if it really did mean nothing, it wouldn't be a thing. One of the most common fan interactions I had at Cracked was I'm taller than my persona. I think that your mm-hmm. persona emits a height that people think you are based on exactly. something about like aggressiveness or status, especially yes. if they've seen you in like a show context or in a narrative. Exactly. And they're like, because based you on see, your status, yeah. I thought you'd be five, nine, you're six, one. Yeah. I'm displeased. You walk around <laughs> like a five, nine person, which oh, I don't know where that comes from. Tom Cruise walks around like he's six, two. He's not. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I think people know what we're talking about. I'm not that very, I'm not very good at like being elegant in describing it, but I think we got there. <laughs> That's why you're a podcaster, right? Yeah. No. You know, just words. <laughs> well, then let's get into our first segment so we can display all of our elegance, like so much glistening Turkey under a glass mm. serving dome. In a bit we call Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here all Under the Dome. And we did a little bit of Under the Dome, but this is where we actually give you the nuts and bolts of um, what the story's about. I should have said the meat to extend the turkey metaphor. That's the other thing, Uh. though, is someone always says the turkey's a little dry. And I think we should just admit that turkey is a little dry. Compared to turkey chicken. is not a great meat. It's you can, designed to be like a meat for the populace. You can make it not dry. You can brine it, which is shoving liquid yes. into the meat. But I'm saying yes. naturally it is drier than chicken. Yeah. I've like a butter. I don't know why we're still talking about it, but I've had some butter balls that are pretty good. But yeah, in general, it's tough to do. Speaking of butter do. balls, uh, you want to tell us the tale of this butter ball? And yeah, I'll so Billy Halleck, and, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Billy Halleck is like an obese upper class lawyer, uh, and he has a wife and daughter, Heidi and Linda. And he, as we start the film, he is defending uh, a crime boss named Richie the Hammer Ganelli in court. And uh, within the first sequence, he's basically celebrating uh, the acquittal of the Hammer on a murder charge. In which he apparently off screen did something. No, is he? Uh, he proved that the guy is so annoying that his wife once took out a hit job on him, and it right. in, and it made him seem like a non credible witness in the eyes of the jury. I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a very good lawyer. Thinks loopholes, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, at the homestead, Heidi, his wife, is trying to get him to. Uh, lose weight because he's obese. There's, you mentioned sort of two threads and at the beginning, at the same time, like sort of before they go on the diet, uh, presented with equal weight, there's three important story threads. He's really fat and he wants to lose weight vaguely uh, or his wife wants him to. He is a crooked lawyer and in this town also people are somehow in like the 80s or whatever, the early 90s, whatever it takes place, virulently virulently racist against the Romani people, like (laughs) have very strong opinions about a quote unquote gypsy caravan coming through town Mm -hmm. and are super, super um, cartoonishly racist against them, which I just think is funny that that they'd have a strong opinion at this point in time. Yeah. It's, 
Yeah, we're going to unpack that a little bit more, I think, later. Sure. Uh, just jumping back on the bus. The um, So there's a Romani kind of festival in town. That's a traveling festival, as called in this film, a Gypsy Circus. Um, and so we see kind of – we kind of see like the the players that will let her later become – uh, important later in the film, but I'm going to kind of skip right past that with the interest of time. What after okay. he celebrated, uh, the victory, uh, in court, uh, he kind of goes out and, uh, they have a meal and on the drive home, uh, Heidi's wife, uh, gives Billy a blow job while they're driving, um, to kind of like, I guess, I don't know. They're just that, that, that will just happen in this. It was, she's like a super, chill supportive yeah, wife yeah. she's trying to be nice yeah, yeah. and uh meanwhile he's distracted so he as he's uh driving through like the main street of town accidentally runs over a romani woman named suzanne lemke uh and what ensues is it's like a horrible it's a horrible catastrophe yet uh because he's like kind of a powerful local and they're outsiders um, the judge in the case for like the manslaughter case and whether or not it, you know, it was even murder and the local police chief kind of do specific deeds like obstruction of justice or perjury for, uh, Billy. And so, uh, as a response, uh, Suzanne's father, um, I believe his name is Tazu. Is that correct? Do you remember? Lemke, Le- Le- Lemke, name. or the na- is the name of the family. Yeah, they call him Lemke a lot. Now. <clears throat> but uh, he places a curse on Billy, uh, on Billy, like kind of outside the courthouse, and whispers thinner. And apparently, off screen, he's done this also to the police chief and to the judge. Um, and soon afterward, of course, Billy begins to lose weight very rapidly. And uh, even if it's independent of how much, well, I guess not independent, but he has to like eat a ton just to maintain like, oh, I'm losing three pounds instead of six pounds. I got the impression it was magically independent. Like it didn't matter how much he ate regardless. I think it was, but he was trying to slow it down by eating more because that comes up in a few Mm -hmm. scenes because everyone's like, you're losing weight really fast. You're also still eating like a pig. This is weird. Um, so this kind of happens and this is kind of like the break in act two where we kind of have the sequence where like his wife is starts to fear that the weight loss might be due to cancer. So they call a, you know, a doctor and Billy uh, begins to suspect that his wife is actually having an affair with that uh, um, doctor. So I think all the elements are now at play and what kind of ensues. I don't know if you want to take over at this point, but this is kind of like the bulk of the. Uh, this is kind of the bulk of what the conflict net the bulk. Yeah. Get uh, it. Uh, he does all the things you would expect him to yeah. do, which we can go into more detail right. later, but basically he just does all the stuff you'd expect. Like he gets tested, mm-hmm. he get checks into a clinic. He tries to eat more. Yeah. He, you know, thinks it's good at first, but then thinks it's bad. He tries to compare notes with Hopley, the police detective, as as well as mm-hmm. the judge, and finds out that they're both in the advanced stages of their curses. One's a lizard-like uh, being, the other's like, uh, got, just got ulcers everywhere. Yeah, so the judge, McCready? I mean, that's the guy from The Thing. But no, I th- it's judge something is like Rossington, that. Carrie Rossington. 
Rosington, Cary. Cary is what was thrown towards McCready. But um, uh, Rosington. Yeah. Judge Rosington, the crooked judge, he whispered the word lizard. I wonder, what did he whisper to Hopley? We never find that out. Like, we get to see him, and he's like a horrible troll homunculus. But what did he say? Like pig? Boils or, or something like that? Because it's like boils. very... Like he's got bumpy skin, like pus, like... He's also like turning into a lobster man, like his fingers are melting yeah, together. Yeah, or he could have said something close to like leprosy, because that's, it looks like lobster. the presentation of leprosy to me, you know, in this day and age. Like that's how we present the leprosy. Um, but what if he said random? Yeah, he could also And he just go was like, like dealer's choice. Wild card. Yeah. Wild card, third one. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's the that's the Futurama joke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Hopley shoots himself mm-hmm. in a in a horrible depressed state. The uh, other guy goes away to the Mayo Clinic to try to get his lizardism addressed, um, but the wife. Also, like, drives Billy from the house screaming, the curse will never be lifted, never. Um, So he does the thing that he would do next, which you would think, which is he goes and tracks down. Ginelli. The, uh, yeah, well, no, I mean, he tracks down the Lemkes themselves first himself. Right, yeah, he does try everything. Like, he begs them. He kind of begs them, even though he's kind of a dick about it. Like He's a dick about yeah. it when he's technically begging for the curse to be lifted. Yeah. Um, but then he says, fine, then I'll make you lift the curse. And he goes back to his old friend, Mikey, the Swame Hammer. Swame Hammer. That's my favorite DNC that ever <laughs> is the hammer. <laughs> the bit. hammer but anyway, uh, the hammer, who's like a, the mobster he got off in the beginning and just says, help me put the screws to these guys, mm. Tone. And uh, they do, they, uh, you know, start harassing the gypsies, killing their animals and stuff yeah, and leaving notes. Kind of say, petty shit. The white man from town, which is what they call him, says lift the curse. And um, let's see. Then what happens? They accident. It, gets, it uh, escalates and escalates. Consult my notes. The, yeah. So act three is like they're at war and uh, I'll have to scroll through my notes yeah. unless you can pick yeah, it up there. Yeah, I can there. pick it up there. Uh, and like it kind of comes to a head this like uh, it's spinning out of control when they actually when uh, the hammer actually kidnaps like the great granddaughter of the man who put the curse. Um, uh, what's her name? God, I just, it was in my head. Another Lemke. Um, But Mm -hmm. basically kidnaps her and says like, we're going to kill you unless you reverse it right now. And that's kind of, um, that kind of is the bow that uh, breaks for for Tadsu because he agrees to meet with Billy. Um, That's right. That's right. It's after the mobster puts a jar of acid on her head and makes it balance, makes yeah, it balance that's it on a her great head. Scene. Uh, just in terms of like, this is all over the place. Acid, you bitch. Yeah. And so, so, which we'll talk about why I think it's interesting. The, the last maneuver of the script is like atypical to what the, what it's building up to. But just so we're all clear on what he does, Tatsu essentially brings a pie um, to Billy and says that you're going to bleed in this pie. And if someone else eats this pie, the curse will kill them very quickly and you will be like, fine. But anyone who eats this pie is going to get cursed with like the ultimate version of what you have right now. Um, 
They also kill the granddaughter's husband. Yes, yes. That's oh, yeah, like that, the final, yeah, final that's, straw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, but he's like Lemke is like, or you could be a hero and eat the, eat the pie, pie yourself. yourself. Yeah, and it'll speed up the process, so you'll die more painlessly. But yeah. it's just like die clean, die clean. And there's he one other thing that in Act Two I uh, failed to mention, which is that while they're doing the kind of war sequences, there's also kind of a every now and then uh, he and the hammer kind of discuss the fact that he really believes that Heidi is sleeping with the doctor that diagnosed him right. with whatever it is, because there's many reasons, I guess why Billy would think that like, they don't know what it is. He's pretty con. No one's listening to him on the fact that he, he's a very comforting presence. To yeah. Her. He's confident that friends, it's like, but this, no, this is because of the curse and no one will listen to him. Uh, so he keeps breaking out of like the hospital and stuff. And he's seen them have moments like the, the doctor is definitely there at the home too much. And I think that the movie does want you to think that they are kind of starting an affair. Uh, so, Oh, my impression was that the doctor wants to, but I, I don't, don't think, think she, she's yeah, I think yet. that's the yeah. best takeaway or that's what the ending reveals, which is kind of the sequence where he finally gets back home He's got the thinner uh, disease now is in the pie and he intentionally gives Heidi, his wife, the pie and she eats the piece because she thinks it's over. They're kind of having a celebration. They go to bed and uh, the next morning, Billy finds basically just uh, a skeleton, like a like a real thing. But exuding pie or filling all over itself yeah, or something? Or I, I don't understand. I thought that might have been actually because like just deterioration, but yeah, I think- her blood, I didn't, like her jelly. I think jelly. that was her jelly blood because I don't think he like forced the whole pie and she just ate a piece. No, but that makes what's next even weirder yeah. because nothing about him is said that he's like a vampire or a ghoul. Right. He is a lawyer who's a fat guy who likes food, not necro, like copro, necro, whatever. Right. <laughs> but he... uh that would be a uh, dead shit, whatever yeah. I mean, the eating of the dead. <laughs> but he leans in and eats part of her face. What the fuck was yeah, that about? I, I guess it had to be pie. That's the only, it's just weird because it's like you'd be eating a whole pie like a maniac to get that much pie around your face. Which would also, and then it would mean that he triumphantly having ra lifted the curse is like, you know what would really set this moment apart? If I lick some pie out of my wife corpse's Which is, mouth yeah like why and then he even says like he like he picks away he's like can't eat some of this because he's doing like an internal monologue out loud at this point oh he's like yeah i can't eat this pie like he's like <laughs> narrating which i just thought was really weird and we're gonna go into the ending a little bit later and how it's different from the novel mm -hmm. but uh it wouldn't be stephen king if he didn't kind of go for the jugular here so uh even though Billy's kind of happy that he's free from the curse and his disloyal wife, uh, when he goes downstairs, he discovers that his daughter Linda's eaten some of the pie for breakfast. And so as he realizes that, uh, there's he realizes that he's probably should just eat the pie himself. Like he's about to set a piece of pie for himself when a knock happens on the door, uh, who is the doctor. See. Dr. Mikey. Dr. Mikey. And it's like, why would you be here all of a sudden? You know, like it's kind of over. You're done with your job, buddy. 
and you didn't know mm-hmm. that I'm home. So why are you here? He kind of dances around that and just kind of treats the doctor nicely going like, oh, yeah, why don't you come in? Have some pie. So. And Mike, at that point, has an aside just to camera as the final line where he actually calls himself uh, the white man from town. So he has now become essentially a monster because he refused to do the heroic, quote, heroic thing, which is to eat the pie himself. And his actions have killed probably himself, definitely his daughter and uh, wife, and probably the life of this doctor. Um, so, yeah. And if you know how pie works, potentially, like, he could parse that out. He could use that pie over the next year or two to do a whole killing spree yeah, if you could, wanted. Yeah, exactly. If you re- well, then that we get into, like, Death Note territory. Have you ever seen that anime? It's a potent poison pie. Yeah, yeah that he's, like, tries to save, I know the premise. He cuts little pieces of the page. So he's like, that's what I mean is he could just cut a tiny little piece. I mean, of the that's pie like a, that, you know, what that's would an that amazing do? weapon right there. But at this point, he's a sociopath. Poison, untraceable poison. He also pie. thinks he, he yeah. should die because he has nothing left to live for. Uh, it's pretty, pretty sad tale. Uh, but that's it's kind of misty. Missed ass. I think that's. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's under the dome. Do you want to move to our next sequence? Turkey was a little dry, but like, yeah, let's <laughs> move on to dry. Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. This is about the creative team and behind the scenes trivia. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned that uh, the fact that he's overweight and that's why he wrote this. Um, I thought that's kind of a cool way to like Stephen King kind of does that. We've noticed in just in this podcast. And if you studied Stephen King in general, uh, he's kind of done that with a few things like Dreamcatcher, the idea of being like uh, locked up or, you know, uh, in your own bed for misery. Uh, he, he, you know, like any good writer, you write kind of what's around you and you find out what's horrifying about it. That's kind of one of the things that makes Stephen King kind of applicable is that he tries, I think, always with his scripts to come from something relatable. Uh, and I think that's what, Oh, that's he his. absolutely, every experience he has, yeah. like if he goes to get his muffler replaced, he's like, could I horror mm-hmm. this? Yeah, exactly. Is this a horror? <laughs> make this yeah. a horror, this pipe, is this a horror pipe? Um, so the two writers of this is the director, Tom Holland and Michael McDowell, who, uh, I actually found that that's the right. writing, Spider-Man. the dialogue Spider-Man in this, this movie was actually pretty good. I don't know what you thought about it. <gasps> oh, we've been somewhat cagey, but I think people can tell by the, t- I think we've said a few things that tip it, but can we just be out with it? Abe, like this movie's bad, yeah, right? It's not that good. This is not that good of a movie, I think. Yeah. And I didn't know when we wanted to get into that, but I, th- I guess, do you mean like, no, I know is my answer. I wrote down a bunch anything. of lines I because was, I think they're hilariously bad. I, yeah, it is hilariously bad. The idea is insane. I think most of the reason it may not, I think most of the reason that the movie is bad, uh, is actually, I mean, not in, I think it comes from Stephen King, to be honest with you on this one. I don't think it comes sure. from, and this is something we never really talk about with Skeleton Crew, because we talked about bad movies like Dreamcatcher and stuff that are just bad and no one can save it. I think that's kind of the situation here, because Michael McDowell, for example, wrote Beetlejuice, and one of my favorite parts of Beetlejuice is his like 
it's not that he's a virtuoso writer like Tom Stoppard or like really clever like Kasdan where like things kind of come to a head. He's not doing the story crafting. He's just writing dialogue and it's a silly premise and I don't think Tom Holland knew how to do it. So I do think there's some failure on Tom Holland's part as well as the director because is this supposed to be funny? Should it ever be funny? Is it what tone is this movie supposed to be? I think there's parts where it's sardonically supposed to be funny, but it's too sardonic. It comes off yeah. like the movie Very Bad Things, if you've seen that. It just comes off as like weirdly cruel in a surf, superficial right. way. And uh, I think Very Bad Things is like one of the worst <laughs> movies. Yeah. Like, and not just a bad movie, like a failure, technical failure, but watching it is unpleasant to do. Right. Uh, and uh, despite my stupid shout out, we should point out, this is not Spider-Man's Tom Holland. This Tom Holland also worked on Langoliers. Yes. And which is famously not great as well. And worked on this. It took him six years six to make years. this. Yeah. Dino De Laurentiis originally wanted to produce it after he completed Maximum Overdrive, considered one of the worst Stephen King adaptations of all time. Mm. And originally wanted Sam Raimi to direct it, but Sam Raimi pulled out. So I do think this movie's kind of set up for failure. Yep. And if you take its pedigree into account, they did pretty well. I thought they did a little okay. better than I'd expect them to do. Even. I don't think it's an A team, but I do think that Michael McDowell it's not understands the A -team, no. like Kurt dialogue, uh, dialogue that moves the scene forward. Like he's really good at sure. that. Because uh, Beetlejuice, for example, is spastic and all over the place, yet there's a coherent narrative all the way through. I find that hard to do. Um, Stephen King. It's interesting you say that. I didn't know that connection, but my very first note is the score really reminded me of Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. That, Gave me the I same think it's because tonally in that 1996 era, you know, like people were mm -hmm. kind of going for that. They were kind of going for that kind of uh, offbeat tone. The yeah right. yeah it's like kind of playful the music, and that's what's weird is that it takes itself seriously yet it uh, is kind of laughable even the premise. Um, it's kind of spook spook Halloween or yeah. like uh, Freddy Krueger where you're like it's scary but it's not serious it scary. You it's sardonic. That Tom scary. Holland is the origin, the director and writer of Fright Night. So it also, and child's play. Oh. So now it's all, the picture's kind of coming into view, right? He's kind of, he has a tone that I think is not easily accessible by most people, but he definitely sticks with that tone. Child's play is a comedy. Mm -hmm. It also takes itself seriously. Fright Night is kind of a satire of vampire movies. And it's not a really good one. It just thinks of cool concepts for like, what if like the best friend became a vampire and you have to deal with that? You know, that would be weird, you know, or like how, what if we really like botched the ending where like, uh, the, the, instead of just killing the vampire, it's very unclear and it's very hard to do. And it's very like, it takes everything out of you in a way that you wouldn't perceive of. It's, I think Tom Holland's actually yeah. a very, like, if I had to think of another director, now, this director would be better. Uh, I would think of Peter Jackson and I would think of, you know, like Meet the Feebles. Yes. He He's intentionally it. superficial. And by superficial, I mean Lord of the Rings. The takeaway is like goodness is good yeah. and friendship is yeah. good. It's not sophisticated. No. He's just like, let's have a fucking good time. Mm -hmm. And and he's great at it. 
Um, I think these guys are are B team players doing the same game, though. You're absolutely right. Like they steer away from what we would call issue movies. In fact, they delayed this mm-hmm. movie several years because they felt it was too similar to the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. The curse being spread. So it's like they literally didn't want anyone to mistakenly think the movie had a deeper point. No, no, no. It's just a magic pie. Yeah. Like, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, you know, as Ron don't. Howard once We're told Homer guys. Simpson. We're not the guys going to be. The pie is your yeah, movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a great kind of segue. I want to say one more thing. If there's anything else you wanted to say about Skeleton Crew, I think I have a good segue to get us into our next phase. Sure. So uh, just a couple side yeah. notes that I think people will appreciate. Daniel Von Bargen plays Hopley, the police chief. Famously, mm-hmm. Commandant Spangler from Malcolm in the Middle mm-hmm. and a real character acting hero of mine. In fact, my character in our Jedi School series at Crack was based on him. Uh, if you didn't make the connection just by listening, the voice is an impression of Daniel Von Bargen. I, know, as I never knew that. Spangler. And I was director of that project. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, you didn't even try. <laughs> yeah, um, I hear it now. And speaking of voice, void notable voices, uh, the guy who plays the hammer, the mobster, is Joe Mantegna yeah. doing his regular mobster voice. And Simpsons fans will know that he is the he was uh, he was Fat Tony for a couple times, and then I believe Dan Castellaneta took over, but does an impression, of course, of Joe yeah. Mantegna. So all the time he's like. Don't worry, I'll deal with you your Romani problem. Like, it just sounds exactly like Fat Tony and the Simpsons being like, well, don't worry about the curse, Bart. We'll protect you. We'll protect you. you. Uh, Let me put this acid yeah. on your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, acid. Um, and Walter Bobby, it's chock full of great character actors, people you'd recognize. Yeah. yeah. So, so, all right, that's all I got. Before we get to our next segment, I do want to say one thing is that what's interesting to me about this movie and why I even mentioned Peter Jackson is that I think at the heart of Thinner, um, because it is kind of silly, there is a morality play that is very loud. Like it calls attention to itself. And we, I think we should discuss that. It's just the movie doesn't really do that. And I'm eager to see if what, whether or not like it avoids those, like you pointed out, it, it avoids trying to preach about like moral responsibility, um, which is what the movie is really about. And I wonder if the novel does as well, because um, Stephen King to me is someone who doesn't really make he he'll think of dark endings, but he doesn't really make you feel the moral responsibility of the actions. That's not where the horror comes from. Only rarely does it come but, from that. <clears throat> uh, I will say that is more often the case in Richard Bachman books, mm-hmm. which this is one of them. Uh, one of, yeah. we should point out. So if you really don't know King, he uh, wrote so prolifically that he was having trouble getting things published at a steady, at a rate at which he wanted, because that's how often you get paid, right? If he he's like, I got five novels this year, I'm ready to publish, push them out. I want the right. money and give shit me, me. and the acclaim. So for a period, he wrote under the pseudonym Richard Bachman so that he could run two careers simultaneously. That's how much this motherfucker which, writes horror stories. Which I am all about. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, uh, 
pretty quickly people, you know, like scholars and fans of horror who read between the lines were like, I think Richard Bachman, Stephen King, but he just kept doing it as a sort of an, uh, you know, an homage. And he became Stephen fucking King, who everyone will publish like at any time. You yeah. Decide, once, Stephen. And, once he crossed uh, that threshold. Yeah. But he still puts out Bachman books and they tend to be more sardonic, more nihilistic, edgier, crueler in some ways. Mm. Uh, they do seem to have a certain tone. They to seem him. like short stories drawn into novels. You know, he he felt like more like I'm going to play with characters more. That's fair. Um, but it's it's one conceit as opposed to if you look at like The Shining, which is like a saga, which is a whole yeah. So in other words, Bachman books tend to be thinner. Ah, should we move yes. on? Yes, <laughs> let's move on to our next phase that we call it. Bill, if you'll come with me. You'll float too. You'll float too. This is basically the whole thing, the whole shebang. Well, and you start? So if you said that was, you said that was a segue. My segue is that. So do yeah, you want to? I can. Yeah. You want to start first with because I'm going to assume what you're talking about because it is glaringly obvious is there's a problem with systemic corruption. Systemic mm-hmm. corruption is a problem. Mm-hmm. That's the theme, right? Or that that seems to be a social moral parable. Right, I think like it's bad that he's corrupt. There's something about that. The movie seems to say. I think that's say. the uh, <laughs> that's the interior conflict, and that's one conversation we should and will have. That I think that there's one that is even more blaringly obvious that the film just avoids entirely. It's bad to be fat. Which is what? That there's a Tell cool. Dis- <laughs> I've tried. To. There's a cool discussion of power redistribution in this film, and the film doesn't really dive fully into it. Um, so like, for example, it all comes from like that Edmund Burke, um, quote, uh, the only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing kind of thing. Right. And that's like the personal conflict because we see everything through Billy's eyes, but the, it's what this movie is really about is the vainglory of the powerful. It's about imbuing the lower class with magical powers to essentially exact justice upon whomever is doing crimes against them. That's which true. Is Cause the judge and the chief of police also get got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, the punishment is also apt because it's almost for him, not for the, it's not like, you know, <laughs> the judge is becoming a lizard and he, it's because he wants to be a lizard, but the punishment for Billy at least is that it's, uh, it's too much of his particular ideal. It's you got you want to lose overruled weight. counselor. I want <laughs> to be a lizard. So Sorry, he ought to on. lose weight. So his crime is to lose all his weight. Uh, and so it's an absolute yeah. reversal. And I think that that's interesting because when we look at the sins of like when we look at his sins, gluttony is his basic crime. So that's obvious. And that's the one that the uh, story kind of takes. And they're conflating, which I kind of have a problem with, mm-hmm. but. Uh, they're conflating gluttony, literal gluttony. I like to eat a lot of food with, with greed, with right? obesity. Like, he's willing to take loopholes and he's yeah. willing to be corrupt. I bet he also is a fat bastard. One is an exa- examination roll. of body yeah. mass index. One is an examination of a sin. Um, so it's not a commentary mm-hmm. on obesity. It's a commentary on gluttony. But he takes too much. But he, and, and you thing. see in his scenes where he's like, he doesn't care. He's just like, I would like more, 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 more. And it's re- it's yeah. revealed also in his greed, uh, in how he sidesteps and uses kind of means that are very bendy of the law in order to get someone out of a murder charge. So 
greed, lust, envy, pride, they're all in this. They're all in here. Um, but gluttony is his basic mm. crime. But what I find that it's just really interesting that in terms of who, when you look at the power structures that are knocked down by this film, by the Romani, uh, he and, and the concepts at player is that he's criminal adjacent. He's not a criminal. Like even his crime is like an accident is not a crime is something that's said in this. It's not about the crime. Mm. It's not about the result. One could say it's not about the obesity. It's about the sin. And and fudging, constant fudging of the rules in your favor right. because his crime is not the the accident. It's that he lied and got the cop to lie about the fact that he was getting mm-hmm. a blowjob, which obviously is distracted driving and would have complicated the case. He chooses to be the arbiter and say, well, it was an accident in the sense that I didn't yeah, mean to do it intentionally. Exactly. So I should get off. So I'll just manipulate the system and fudge it to get right. off. That's his greed. So there's two kind of things going on right now. There's the interior or the internal conflict that is which which is more of like his particular sins and why he his particular brand of justice that's now been stamped upon him and how horrifying that is but also the horrifying aspect that is not inspected by the movie and i don't know if it's inspected by the uh novel as well because i haven't read it um but when you look at the power structure uh destruction uh in this concept in the story it's also kind of clearly pointing to the evil isn't just the evil is that man that man is evil that man is you know doing sins but also the the structure that man the structure of the society itself the fact that romani are outsiders the fact that someone who's quote unquote big in this like uh society a man of a man around town the white man from the big wheel down at the cracker factory will be protected by other white men from town and they build a hegemony of power coercion against the lower classes i think that that is something that's very clearly when you just look at like the story is a bunch of chess pieces and you have like, well, here's the knight and here's the rook and they have their own duty. And you just kind of look them at, as pieces of the story It is absolutely specific and deliberate. It's just not examined from a scene to scene basis in the movie. Right. Because the one, two punch, the second punch is like, so what if the common people, but that's not even what you're saying because you're, you're singling out by using an old xenophobic yeah. trope. Like, we fear Romani people because they're magic and they do it. It's a muddled message. If it, like, it doesn't really, I, you know what I, I mean? I think it could be, it doesn't come down though. on one side of it's like, it's bad that he did that stuff, yeah. but you also understand Lemke to be just a fallible human with his own opinions. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you could argue, I don't know if uh, the cop really deserved to turn into a homunculus really, but that's not up to you. Mm-hmm. He's a human-like character who decides whatever he thinks, and he hates that guy. Uh, you know, whether it's it's uh, you just covered this on director piece theater, but as because it's a quote unquote gypsy curse tale, uh, there's a lot right. of drag me to hell in it, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of the doom of, and I just think that always always muddies your message because where that trope actually comes from is xenophobia. It's picking a minority people and saying, let's be scared of them. I bet they soured the crops, but you know, they're conflating that with the underdog story of like, well, what if the poor people who got wronged? And that's something I think we're magic. I think Rami also (laughs) 
isn't going for it because he's going for a goofy tone as well because he's Raimi. He doesn't he makes light right. movies. He's pretty vanilla, uh, you know, after Spider-Man and such. But even yeah. at that film does even better than thinner at its examination of like it's a very intentional that she works in in drag me to hell that our main character works in a bank <laughs> you know like it right. is very clear and her her sin just like um you know it's not gluttony which kind of feels like it's a it's adjacent because it's a sin like it's close it's like yeah yeah, yeah he's a sinful man but like there's a lot of weird things that uh king does in this movie where it's like yeah but gluttony doesn't really have anything to do with like moral like flexibility and also like what's up with the whole like the he blames his wife for doing like an act of love you know like in the in the novel i believe she gives him a hand job and this one she blows him doesn't matter why are we focusing on like the quote-unquote lust of it all when lust isn't really his sin he's just you know, like, I guess his sin is that he'll justify, he'll justify anything, anything to make yeah. himself morally OK. Yeah, because he says, well, it's her fault. Was I giving myself a blowjob mm -hmm. just then? Which also made me laugh. Just I just I'm like, what if she was like, oh, uh, you were. And it fades back. Yeah, and you're like, oh, he was. Himself. I forgot he was blowing <laughs> himself. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, basically the way in which he actually becomes an irredeemable monster, if you want to track that arc, which is a slightly different arc is that he constantly justifies, it starts with him justifying why should you help a mobster get off? And it's the classic lawyer's justificate, right? Everyone deserves a defense and, uh, you know, that's the system. I, it's legal what I'm doing. It's, a, it's an honored part of the legal tradition well, that I'm defending people, blah, blah, blah. And you'll do anything to manipulate then, the system to get money. But then uh, by the end of the movie, he's justifying like, yeah, my wife deserves to die exactly. because it's her fault. I hit a person by accident with my car because she was giving me a blowjob. Mm -hmm. I blame her. She's probably cheating on me anyway. I don't have proof, but I'm going to murder her with this pie. Right. That's um, his ability to justify acts of evil has grown significantly. Right. Which is why he becomes the horror at the end, because once again, the story is truly about the vainglory of the powerful. It's about justification because of your vanity, because of your pride that you deserve better than someone else. And you get to, if you are smart enough, it's a very American principle. As I've said before in this podcast, it's really become clear to me that uh, like Stephen King is an Americana horror writer. He's, he's there to detach us from our own Americana and show that as horrifying. And I think he does succeed in this by choosing his characters as chess pieces to reveal the story that it's like the system itself of individualism, the system of like, we should go for us and everyone's out to get their own peace. And the success stories of America have been in someone grabbing, you know, the, the big shots are big shots are little shots that kept shooting. We glorify these things. You know, we, these statements, these, um, this like kind of capitalist endeavor. I don't know if Stephen King is anti-capitalist, but I definitely think he's trying to peel back and reveal like kind of the messy, you know, engine that makes this whole society run. Right. So I think he definitely, King definitely observes that 
aspects of capitalism engender greed, which is a sin, and that's creepy or negative or horrifying in some way, that doesn't mean he would vote to abolish capitalism or whatever. You know, there's a difference between political manifestations and your just inner workings. But he definitely sees the potential there for horror Mm -hmm. in Americana through and through. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And I weirdly, I think, you know, who else really nails that is Neil Gaiman, who is not American. But he is a great Americana horror. And he's a great, uh, like, Anglophile. He can do the same thing to British tradition and mythology. And he tends, you can sort of sort his stories that way. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, what else can we say about Thinner? Did you have, I mean, I have stuff, but it's more uh, granular than the stuff you're going through. So did you have any more? Yeah, big I just wanted stuff? to do that. Start off with the broad strokes of in my eyes, I see two basic conflicts going side by side in the story, which is to me as like a screenwriter, that's actually very smart. Like for a storyteller to do that, to say that there's moral intricacies about him as a like our main character and their own internal struggle of why they're terrible person for, let's say, in this example, uh, mm-hmm. And then to also reflect that as a social ill uh, and not make them clearly one to one, not make it so like I still think it's weird that he chose gluttony. But the fact that it, like it is basically greed because uh, the lawyer aspect like the, you know, like with the hammer and all that, uh, the showing the greed and the lawyer aspect in one hand. And then also the society's, uh, it's easily, or it is rather uh, easy to manipulate so that the poorer class or the Romani people in this case are victims constantly. Um, Mm -hmm. That is a good side-by-side comparison to kind of reveal then later in the thing, oh, these horrors are actually one and the same. That ultimately our character, ultimately a character can become someone who is just like, I am just... I need to, I'm out for me. I need to look for me. I fight. I hate my wife, even though she's been all but supportive. <laughs> I, right. I, I'm sad that my daughter's dead, but I still need vengeance. So I'm going to kill this other guy. And, and I we should know white man around. Cause town, I'm sure town. there's people screaming it at the podcast this whole time. Uh, the ending was altered. They did yes. shoot an ending that's faithful to the novel story and famously test screenings were mm-hmm. so unpopular. They changed it. And it's, it's very the mist adjacent where the story was changed to include murdering your own child by force for nothing. Uh, which is, this is almost for nothing because it was optional. Mm-hmm. The daughter didn't have to eat the pie. It was already done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Heidi ate the pie, but it, it, yeah, it's very adjacent. We've talked about sort of the Venn diagram of the Stephen King universe where, uh, oh, Stephen universe. Anyway, where am I going with this? Where uh, there's elements that he swaps them around, trades them around. So I think it's always fun to identify what the threads are, the recurring things that obviously amuse King that are in there. Yeah, go for it. So the original ending, just for the record, is that he... He, Heidi and the daughter eat the pie and he eats the pie himself realizing, oh my God, what have I done? I want to mm-hmm. die. No Dr. Mikey. So that that's what was interesting is they added the doctor. I'm not sure if there's the, I haven't read the book either. So there could very well be the thread of he thinks she's cheating on him, but I don't think he feeds Dr. Mikey the pie. That was either a <clears throat> punchline they added or just some kind of pivot to, which is interesting because it didn't soften it that much. I would assume that test audiences would have reacted negatively to the daughter dying at all. Well, but I, they yeah. kept that. Well, here's the, here's the thing. So 
I, I actually like start, I read a little bit more into that. There's two basic differences between the um, endings. The difference of the, they basically just added a final sequence is what they did uh, in the movie where they kind of got a more clear verification of Linda's infidelity with the doctor. And also the death of the daughter is more of an accident. I can't, I, I haven't read it, so I don't see the details, but that's what people are saying. So that is, okay. it sounds like audiences were like, oh, but why, but like the daughter, the daughter death is like, that's too much. Egregious. And then okay. also they're saying like, why did he punish his wife? Which is a very good note. <laughs> yeah. So they made it more, so they had to make it more like, no, he really thinks she's cheating on him. Yeah, yeah. And like the, and he kind of has a reason too, you know, which I think is like, it's weird because I think the original idea from Stephen King is a little weird already to begin with. And it's almost like they double downed. But uh, I can't it. imagine. Yeah, they double down. Cause I could imagine in prose format where you're writing in the head of the protagonist, mm-hmm. you could do a lot of the mental math to slowly have someone. You could see how he slowly becomes an asshole and he blames his wife out of the psychological need to blame someone other than himself. Yeah. But that's a very nuanced transition in someone's mind for a B team crew <laughs> film to really like cover with show don't tell mechanics so i don't think they necessarily succeeded there and they found that it was an easier handle so to speak to Mm -hmm. just go well if you really think she's unfaithful then you'll be like mathematically it makes sense he would want to kill her or he could that's a that's a move i've seen before in movies you kill your unfaithful spouse uh to bring up again drag me to hell it reminds me of that that movie kind of had the balls to do something that this didn't which is that ball spelled B A A L. Yeah. Yeah. And spoiler for drag me to hell. So skip ahead one minute or something. And in drag me to hell, she goes to hell at the end. And you think for the entire movie that she's might get out of it. And then the last two seconds go, Nope, she got, she went to hell. And so in this movie, what they chose to do is it's it's foreign to me, or maybe it was just like what 1996 was like, because now it seems like a no brainer in today's 2020 kind of like, you know, zeitgeist in terms of films and horror films specifically. It seems like a no brainer to be like, no, absolutely. She shouldn't have been cheating on him at all. They shouldn't mm-hmm. have been a thing. He invented it entirely because he is such a monster that if you were listening at the beginning of the film, for all the things that we just kind of took for granted, you know, like, ah, he's just be boys will be boys. Like there's a scene where they like mm-hmm. look outside through, uh, the window and they see the Romani girl who's very sexy and they comment about it. And then they say, well, very- they don't just, Abe, let's point, I want to point out, Abe said he liked the dialogue in this movie. Yes. What they say is quoting, see that gypsy piece of ass, yeah. give her this quarter Tell her to lift her skirt. Who's ever said that in the history of anything? That's such a weird thing to say. See, that's the, but that's what makes it. Give her this quarter. Th- and he pulls a quarter out of his pocket and hands yeah. it to him. And he goes, he's saying go she's give cheap. her this quarter. Tell her to lift her skirt. They're like making a joke that she's essentially a jukebox. Right. Right. And she flips awful. him off, obviously, magically hearing That is clear dialogue that afar. shows that it, I mean, it's true that like it's, it's a little It's clear. Flowery. It's just not good. It's a little Beetlejuicey. 
Uh, I'll yeah. admit. Uh, I don't know. I thought that it's it's effective. Maybe it's not great. I'm not gonna go to bat for like this is like it's sneaky smart. It's just very efficient. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get in, in its own way, and that's something to be said about the dialogue in this movie like it's very clearly you're supposed to hate him but he's doing a good job of making it all seem like ah boys will be boys right and then you get the audience some of the audience is like yeah boys will be boys but really what we should be doing is looking into the eyes of the writer craftsman uh, who's telling the story and going like you're a fucking asshole for thinking that stop thinking that Mm -hmm. like that's what that's what the movie's supposed to be doing, right? A good movie does that with their act one and reveals in act three, all the presumptions that you made, all the assumptions that you thought were supposed to be like, ah, he's just a guy. Ah, they're just a happy family. No, fuck that. That's what's horrifying. Don't you see? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I liked it. But anyway, that's enough of that. Um, Well, before we, I think we should do this now then, I just want to point out some dialogue quotes because I thought this had bad dialogue all a Dreamcatcher and I wrote down notable moments Mm -hmm. like, I don't think you'd like it, Henry. In fact, I don't think you'd like it at all, (laughs) which is just, again, who's ever said that? That's so labored. No one's ever said that in the history of anything. Um, I may have written written on the wall, but he whitewashed it is a very tortured analogy of him trying to justify how the judge is the problem with the system, not the corrupt lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? There's less than I thought. So maybe that's an argument in your favor. Well, but, some of it uh, is and then king. Last but it... not least. Well, I my problem is with cliche dialogue, but yeah. but you know you're right. It's still straightforward. It still accomplishes the thing. But like at the end, he literally says, "My God, what have I done?" And I like you couldn't think of any other way to phrase that. That's just so phoned in. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let's not forget, getting evens also what it's all about. You bitch. And that's like his catchphrase line. That's like his cool tagline at the end when you realize he's going to kill his you wife. Bitch. And yeah. I just think it's too wordy. That's my problem with all these. Di- yeah. They would have these catchphrases that are supposed to be monumental and they have four words too many in them. Yeah. Get pro- evens right also what it's all about, you bitch. That's too long of a kick right. tagline. But, any, but you're doing like the whole thing where you're like, you read in a courtroom what you said, it always sounds worse. You know, it's, but- true right. it's like right. all state a good neighbor is there are you in good hands and you're like fucking pick one dude <laughs> yeah one no, of you're, the other you're right yeah. about uh it's a little it might be it might be getting in its own way there uh i think stephen king kind of pulls that out a little bit you know uh i think well he does people have tend ones. to like, faithfully like, transcribe his dialogue and he is a flowery dialogician right i do like some of the stuff that is clearly uh stephen king and right. not like the screenwriters. There's, uh, I do actually like, and in fact, it's funny to me because Stephen King really likes it because he uses it in multiple stories. Uh, the phrase, I want you to stop digging your grave with a spoon and fork. With a knife and fork, with yeah. An, yeah. Well, in this one, it's a spoon and fork, which I thought was Oh, weird. okay. Uh, yeah, he does that again in a different I also story. Just, I forget which one. I, you know me. I'm like, I'm all about the postcard of a film. Like, if you can give me a frame that represents like what, is going on in the film, or you can give me a sentence that is encapsulates like the flaw of the main character. Like there's some simplicity in just the statement. An accident is not a crime, you know, because it's like anyone can be convinced of that. Yeah. That's a strong theme for a movie. I agree. It's also verifiably untrue. 
That's a strong thing to investigate. That's an interesting proposition. Exactly. Yeah. And so there, I guess my res, my reaction to the dialogue is that there's moments that I was like, and there it is. That's what the movie's about. And anytime mm-hmm. I see movies doing that, I'm usually like, yeah, good movie. But yeah, not this movie. <laughs> this movie tries really hard to do so. And I think that there was a lot of things getting in its way. So I'm not going to like throw yeah. the craftsman under the bus because I actually do think that there's some great crafts work in this. Yeah. Speaking of craft, other things that I think deserve mention, of course, the uh, the effects work that takes him from obese to dangerously underweight. Uh, pretty decent for the time period. There is yeah. a problem area around the way the chin opens and closes that yeah, they just tough. could not fix. But uh, everything else worked. I liked the various phases of his weight. It all made sense. Mm -hmm. Didn't look like the clumps or what have you. Uh This is something that I, only a handful of people uh, really notice, probably only cinematographers. Mm -hmm. There's one thing I want to talk about this. I would do it as a director piece theater, but I don't think it has legs for a whole episode. So I'll just mention it here as quickly as possible. I do admire some of the choices made in the cinematography of this movie. It's not a loud cinema, uh, like it's not a loud cinematographic film. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. really make you go like, wow, look at this cinematography. It looks like a made for TV movie, which was kind of the, what we were accustomed to in 1996. But if you notice most of the shots of Halleck have like a sheen across them. I'm sp- specifically looking at before like the thinning starts to take hold because then they start embracing some more like he's kind of they sh- kind of shoot him like dark man. You know, like mm-hmm. the Raimi film, like he's kind of shrouded a little bit. He's kind of falls into the background. He kind of hates being in the light. Um, but if you notice the act one, when he's like just being Billy's just being, being Billy, he has like a sheen across him. And I think that they use more lighting sources on these shots to accomplish this. They didn't want to make him look sweaty, which would also accomplish this. Often we see in films, they'll just like, like a just makeup spray bottle, will come glycerin. In and, yeah, yeah. Add a little spray. But it's so hard because if you overdo that, it immediately looks like you're, you are just sweaty and you've just been running and it says a whole bunch of other stuff. Also water gets on your costume. It's just a nightmare. Right. So another way you can accomplish it though, is that everyone kind of has natural like oils in their skin and you can get those oils to reflect light. Uh, the problem is that when you only have one camera source, like you're only looking through one lens, only some of those oils will actually reflect. And when people are talking in dialogue, they're not like moving their head 180 degrees to capture all of the lights nuances. So the way you accomplish that is you bring in the light in from multiple sources to kind of catch those little sheens. And they do that in this movie. It also means another thing, more frontal sources, because in order to do that, you have to kind of put the light right on the source, right in front of the actor, usually near camera. And what Mm. that does at slightly different angles still. The effect is kind of twofold. It means he shines more than most characters when he speaks to them. It means that they're just like have one naturalistic, like someone's by a window, there's one source of light, half their face is uh, light, the other half of the face is a a little darker. Um, So you have more coverage of light. And so it seems like he's like pulled out of the world, which is kind of a cool effect for your main character to say like him, look at him. He's the one you're going to have to follow. This is the body you care about. Um, And the other, the other thing is that the frontal sources affect eye light. So if you look at just the eyes in this film, 
his highlight throughout the film is more piercing and like overlaps his pu- pu- uh, pupils. So that makes it so that like he's very, he, it has this effect. I don't know if you move eyelight around and you make it like centered to the pupils, it makes people kind of more demonic. I don't know what it is, but they're just, their eyes are more piercing. It's like they're focusing mm-hmm. right on you, the audience member. So it's kind of like a look inward kind of thing. I think it's subtle. I don't know if that was necessarily intentional. I couldn't find any literature about it online, but I think it was a choice made by filmmakers to accomplish something because he's the only one in the film that actually does it. And you notice it more than this kind of gesture is made in other films. You notice it more here, which probably might be a fumbling of the, uh, the execution a little bit, but I just, it, it goes on the list of things for me that it's like, here's a bad movie for all intents and purposes here's a really good craftsmanship choice that they made that had intention and they executed it. And you know what? Give it to the craftsmen and women. They did it. Always, always. And another great choice in craftsmanship, the name Biff Quigley, who is, <laughs> uh, I don't know, a realtor or something. I just wrote down the name Biff Quigley. Good name. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Mine's this long winded thing. <laughs> and yours is just like, also good Biff on that name. <laughs> Quigley. So yeah, that's kind of, I think that's kind of everything I got in terms of like, that's kind of it, why this movie is bad, but also why there's some moments of like, Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. And regardless, it got us talking about, uh, yeah. Injustice and sin and greed. And that was interesting. So Mm yeah, I, I'm, I'm more confident than ever that you can mine a mediocre movie for good material. Yes. We just, I got burned by our October Sky episode. It haunts me. Yeah, you really, you hated that. See, I, I probably should have talked more during that one. I hated for that everyone, it was 44 minutes long. Uh, felt weird for everyone who knows, it, like we had a big reaction to that uh, episode. I think we've talked about it on another frame rate. It was a frame rate. Yeah, yeah we, but we talked about it on another frame rate. We dislike it and we, ch- we try to avoid like movies that are like kind of run of the mill, but like very effective films because we don't find we have a lot to talk about. I was personally just quiet that whole time because I was just like, I don't want to be the guy in this podcast to be like, guys, don't you love October sky? Didn't you Mm. grow up and have nostalgia for October sky? Because that doesn't do anything for anyone other than me, but I could talk about October sky for Oh, I see. That was one of our first episodes. Okay. So your restraint now has ruined me for three years. It's all I think about every time we talk about, every time we talk about a workmanship like movie that is good, which is what I would say thinner is. Yeah, it's good. Uh, Mm. workmanlike and, uh, could be way better could be more sophisticated but it's fine and it's a fun ride it is kind of a fun ride but uh let's 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 think of a list of um all the other movies that stephen king has worked on uh or written and has been adapted that might be better or worse than it and i'm gonna uh call this section the stand Yes, right. you so, said that like a question. Yes, it's called the stand, yeah. and you also implied that you came up with it right now. We've had this. Yes. We've had this. <laughs> this We've been scans. doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, you are Billy Howard. Yeah. <laughs> so, how do you want to approach this one? This is where we talk about. Uh, we just list the pantheon uh, as we've that's right now done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 
Nine? Nine. Nine, but we each have chosen one tie so far, so I believe yes. we start at the bottom with number eight. Or mm-hmm. do you want to start at the top this time? Let's start at the top. Get these out okay. of the way. God, I'm always so nervous that we'll disagree. And now they're very different, so. Okay, yep. number one, The Shining. Shining. Number, number two, two, Stand By, stand by me. me. And Dr. Sleep for me. Yeah. It's a tie. Right. And I got to say- that's sitting well with me. I'm still, I still you think You still that. feel that one? I'm okay. It might change, it might be, uh, I forecast that that might be <clears throat> something I feel weird putting my name behind as time wears on, but it still mm-hmm. feels right so far. That's Number that's three. Good. Misery. Misery. Number, Number four. four. The, the mist. mist. And then here's my, where I put Dr. Sleep as a tie. Okay. So we just both, our Dr. Sleep is our floater, which yeah. is appropriate. Yeah. Um, so that takes us to one, two, three, number five, five. thinner. Ooh, I'm going to put it over it. Really? Yes, number I six. I think it's because got? we had more time to, it's a mini series. Sure. So. Number six. Mm-hmm. Dead zone. Dead zone. Okay. So we flopped it and thinner. So you mm-hmm. don't, so you think th- it is better than thinner and dead zones better than thinner. Yep. Well, let's go just to make sure. Number seven Thinner. for me is it. Yeah. And that's the other choice that I think I'll get flack for over time and people will be like mad at me and I'll feel bad. But I really think it sucks. And yet the conversation we had was fabulous about the systemic underlying nature of the pipes and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I just don't yeah. like it. Yeah, I just, I'm, for this stretch I of the list. I think it's actually that good. I actually think once. In our list right now, the top four for me, which the includes the our tie, both of our ties, right. are like way better caliber films than the bottom four of this list. I agree with that assessment. Yeah. But I will say, so for the bottom four, when I feel like the craft is like, eh, I just go by, was it tangibly enjoyable and past the time? Fine. I think that's a good. And yeah. I thought Thinner was less boring than Dead Zone, which Dead was Zone less boring it. than yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and Dreamcatcher actually isn't boring, but it's unforgivably aggressively bad. Yeah. So just so everyone's <laughs> clear, our both of our eights, Dreamcatcher. I'm pretty sure this one's going to stay at the bottom of the list for a while until we choose probably maximum overdrive. Maximum uh, overdrive will probably go under it, and I can think of yeah, like we'll, the Langoliers. We're forget for a while that uh, Tommy Knockers, La- maybe. Lawrence Kasdan made Dreamcatcher, <laughs> and then we're going to remember that and go like, wait, Dreamcatcher. I, it's been a while since I seen Dreamcatcher. That's got to be higher right like it's yeah. not that bad <laughs> but when you watch Dreamcatcher, you watch it and you go oh my god <laughs> yeah it's tim oliphant trying to get a blowjob from an alien in the snow or something it's, like that uh, nothing it's, makes it's sense. already fa- I don't, no, i'm he's thankfully just fading from my memory we agree most for the most part about what films are in what caliber and where the break I is tend yeah. to, the reason i put thinner so low or rather it may be in your mind dead zone and it higher uh thinner does not chooses like gluttony and then chooses to like make it a story about like the systemic aspects of like a moral moral ambiguity of the legal system and what justice really is um and why it's not actually successful in america those are so separate in my mind that at least the dead zone has a very clear like coda of story thinner just feels like smashing elements together yes 
some of those elements are very interesting. I actually I agree with the- you. Dead Zone is a more correct film. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was more boring than thinner. So it just comes down to subjective. Yeah, it's yeah, tough. Case. It's tough because sometimes we inspect the story in this yeah. podcast. And, and, and then value. sometimes we go, how was it as a flick? Uh, as a, my gut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's going to, there. there's no way around that. We're going to be in and out of that problem the whole time. But that's fine. People can think of your own lists and email us and send us why we're wrong or why we're Endless right. lists. That's what we want. Just we keep, we made thousands of lists for you. Send us some lists. Just keep on podcasting. <laughs> hey, man, keep on podcasting, man. Just always be podcasting. <laughs> well, that's uh, anything else you want to say? I think that's uh, it for I me. love talking to you about movies, but I love talking to you about movies. Buh. We should do it more. I'm just going to call you buh from now on. <laughs> buh? It's All right. less than bruh. It's even, it's more intimate than bruh. It's shorter. Buh. Yeah, it's like but, boo, but it's your ba. Yeah. Mm, mm. All right. Well, that's a sode. I guess so. If you could do a curse at will, we'll wrap it out this way. You could do a curse at will to as mm. many people as you want throughout your life, but you only get one power word. What would your power word be implying what the curse then is, right? Damn. Could it be a compound word? Like a word I make up with hyphen in it? Sure blood explosion or something yeah. horse mouth <laughs> horse mouth does yeah. their mouth become a horse's mouth or do horses come out of their mouth i don't know you just asked me to say what i would say i just think it would be really okay. funny to whisper horse mouth into everyone's face <laughs> what would yours be nice to me <laughs> everyone's cursed to get nicer and nicer to me that's not even a word that's like a phrase nope. that's like a sentence <laughs> a nice to me <laughs> uh, this is a fun game though maybe we'll yeah. take it to twitter <laughs> we'll see um, should we decide what we're covering next time uh, no, I'll put it this way we, One, let's, two, three, let's keep four. them in the dark this time <laughs> Really? Keep them in the dark zone? And no, that's not a hint because we just did dark zone. Dead zone. Yeah, dead zone. Dead oh, wait. Zone. I'm thinking I'm conflating with the, uh, what is it? The darker half? The dark half? Dark man? No, the dark half. Oh, it's the dark king. half. The Stephen King. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that, that's why I'm always, I never plan for this section. So I always feel like I'm forcing future Abe to do something that wasn't really prepared to like have a, I should just fix that. By well, the preparing. first time I forced us to do this, we picked a movie that was unavailable anywhere. So I, I completely. That's why I think it's a bad idea. And I think they should be surprised. They'll be like, oh, episode release. Oh. And instead Fine. of being like looking forward to something and then we realize we shouldn't do it because well, Lawnmower if, Man isn't technically something that Stephen. Oh, King it did. happened again with Lawnmower Man. Yeah, if exactly. you're someone who likes to know the movie ahead of time so you can watch it so you can be fresh on it when you listen to the episode, let us know. But I guess they can also just. Hold yeah. the episode for a couple days, just, watch it. Honestly, I want to foster more more activity for our email. Just like, if you want to know, and it's been a while since, uh, you know, Kings of King has come out, because we do this every month, just email us at allthesmallbeans at gmail.com. Just and just like, us. what are you guys going to cover next time? Easy peasy. That's if right. Or answer, message us we'll at patreon.com slash smallbeans. Okay, that's a set. That's a set. Love you. Okay, love you.
This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.